This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we're exploring dinosaur tracks. We learn where they are, how they got there, and what they can tell us about what Moab was like 225 million years ago. It's a good show. Stay with us. And that chunk of time, too, is also longer. The 225 million years to 70 million years is longer amount of time than what exists today between like when T-Rex was alive and when we were alive as humans. There's more time between all those dinosaur track forming periods of time in the Moab area. So it's kind of trippy when you think about geologic time and just how long it is. home to an incredible number of dinosaur tracks. Today on Science Moab, we get to learn about these tracks by talking with Rebecca Hunt Foster. Rebecca is a Bureau of Land Management paleontologist here in Moab, and from her we learn about why there are so many tracks around Moab, how tracks are studied, and what we can learn about prehistoric ecology through these fossilized footprints. Our interview begins with Rebecca estimating the number of dinosaur tracks that exist in the Moab area. We actually have millions of tracks. Like if you actually went out and counted tracks, there would be, I think, well over a million. Like individual tracks, not trackways, just individual tracks. They're everywhere. There, We have so many tracks. It's just because we have the right kind of rocks to form tracks that the tracks were formed in to be preserved. And those are all present here and exposed at the right time for us to be here too so it's just the great combination of events presumably the same kind of numbers were other places of dinosaurs and things in the past it's just that we have the chance to see them all here yeah we're just living during the time when they're all exposed at the right time and that they're present on the surface and we live places where we don't have a lot of vegetation covering these things because you do get tracks in other places there's a really high density concentration of tracks up in like in the BC area and the Peace River area they have a lot of amazing tracks up there they also have a lot of vegetation a lot of trees and things like that and so a lot of those tracks they probably have even more than what we're aware of, but they're just covered up under vegetation so yeah we're pretty lucky down here desert's good for that tell me about where tracks are usually found around here In the Moab area, most of our tracks are found in the sandstones and the slick rocks are where a lot of our tracks are found in the Entrada Formation, the Navajo Sandstone. Those are where a lot of our big track sites are located because those were the kind of environments that preserve tracks, these sandy coastal areas um, in the case of the Entrada um, or the Curtis Formation, depending on what nomenclature you use. And the Navajo are these big sand dune areas, but with a lot of little lacustrian, little um, pond areas where these animals were coming to get water. And so a lot of tracks are preserved in those areas. So those are the, the two main units that have the most tracks. But then we've got all the Morrison Formation and the Cedar Mountain Formation. So we've got all these wonderful late Jurassic and early Cretaceous tracks as well. 
Yeah, tell me more about the time frame that we're talking about. What span of time do we see tracks from in the Moab area? Most of the tracks that we have in the Moab area are from the Mesozoic era. So we have things from the Triassic, so about 225 million years, all the way up to, for the most part, the mid-late Cretaceous. So we do get some tracks up in the book cliffs, although those are a little more rare, and those can be about 70 million years old. So between 225 and 70 million years. That's a huge span of time. It's a good chunk of time, yeah. <laughs> In that chunk of time, where were the landforms? So the continents were starting to get where they basically are now. I mean, in the Triassic, things were a little more grouped together, but by the end of the Cretaceous, they were close to where they are now. They're still moving a little bit, but not much. All that movement was taking place during that time, too. Not all of it, but a lot of it, and was pulling the continents a little further away from each other and isolating some more of those populations and, and things were evolving a little more differently around the world than what they had been earlier. And that chunk of time too is also longer, the 225 million years to 70 million years is longer amount of time than what exists today between like when T-Rex was alive and when we were alive as humans. There's more time between all those dinosaur track forming periods of time in the Moab area. So it's kind of trippy when you think about geologic time and just how long it is. When there are tracks, is it a safe assumption that there was water? Generally, but not always. We do get tracks in sand dunes. So sometimes you can see especially little early mammal-like animals hopping up dune faces. So sometimes you can see actually little sets of tracks climbing up those dune faces. Those dunes aren't always associated with water. Sometimes they're just in a desert setting. So you do get plenty of tracks around the Moab area that were also formed during a desert-like time. Think like modern-day Namibia. How do these tracks actually form? So like an animal just moving through the sand. And then luckily with the case of the ones on sand dunes, wind-blown sand typically just fills those in pretty quickly and preserves them. So more sand and more sand and more sand over time. And then it all gets compressed into a rock. And then sometimes when those rocks are exposed and they fracture, depending on the way they're being exposed and the way they're eroding, sometimes the layers where that track is at causes kind of a weak plane in the bedding because it's not just straight and horizontal. And so they'll fracture and break in those areas. It goes back to just how they're being eroded out and what sides up and all of that. And sometimes with some of the tracks that are in areas where there's water too, a thin mud or siltstone might be washed into those tracks and that might be softer than the underlying sediment the track was made in and the overlying sediment that eventually piles up on top of it. And that's also a nice weak plane for those rocks to be able to break along. Is there ever overhanging tracks? Oh yeah, there's a lot of overhanging tracks in our area a lot um, because we have so many rock falls that rocks fall off the side of the hill and they go tumbling down. And sometimes we find the tracks in these blocks that have tumbled down the hill but sometimes, too, when you're walking, if you'll just look up, a lot of times you'll see dinosaur tracks hanging down. Um, and that's the actual impression in the mud where they stepped in. So so you're looking at the bottom of the track? You're looking at the bottom of their foot. Oh, cool. Yeah. So they would have been, like, walking above you. But it would have been on ground level. It's kind of trippy. In that big time span again of Moab tracks, what life form span that amount of time? Dinosaurs are really, really successful during this time and only live during the Mesozoic. So you're getting those, but you also have things like these early mammals or mammal-like reptiles that are living 
you have birds, you have reptiles and all sorts of invertebrates. So there's a, a lot of different kinds of life forms that are living during this period of time. And sometimes we even get invertebrate traces too. You'll see little like millipede traces or um, scorpion traces or little lizard tracks. We've collected little lizard tracks before. And so, yeah, there's all sorts of things that are existing beyond just the big dinosaurs that we always think about. What can dinosaur tracks tell us? Dinosaur tracks can tell us a lot of stuff that you can't tell from just the bones. Sometimes dinosaur tracks can tell us about how fast an animal's moving. Um, it can tell you about some of the soft tissue that might have been present on their feet. Sometimes the skin texture on the bottom of their feet can be seen in the mud. You can tell how big a dinosaur was. You can tell occasionally if it's moving with other dinosaurs. Sometimes other dinosaurs are passing through an area over several hours to days. And so it may look like they're moving as a herd, but they may have also just been there one at a time over a series of hours. So that can be a little hard to infer. Sometimes you might see a whole bunch of tracks and think it's a herd, but not necessarily. So, but those are some of the things that you can tell from dinosaur tracks that you can't always tell from the bones themselves when we find fossils. How do you tell those things? Sure. So some of the studies that we do on dinosaur tracks is we might be able to, if we have a series of tracks of steps, we might be able to measure the footprint and then measure the stride length between like a right footprint and its next repeating right footprint. And if we can do that over and over again, we can take an average speed of the animal, how quickly it's moving. So that's one of the things we do. We use math for that. It's basic math, but some math. Um, so that's one of the things that we do with dinosaur tracks. The soft tissue morphology can be really interesting. Sometimes these things are slipping in the mud and you might be able to see what part of their foot looks like. Or it's just kind of fun to imagine a dinosaur slipping in the mud anyway. One of the traces that we have out at the Mill King and dinosaur track site is of a resting trace of a crocodile. And you can actually see as it would have slid into the mud the little traces that the belly scales left as it slid into the mud so that's kind of neat to see these neat long parallel scratches and know that this animal that almost looks like a modern day crocodile for the most part is just sliding into the mud to probably go munch on some turtles like modern day crocodiles do so yeah things like that could be really interesting to see and, and be able to study that you might not be able to see on an actual fossilized skeleton do skeletons and footprints usually co-occur no Sometimes it has to do with the depositional environment where some animals are walking, it's wet and soupy and a lot of fossils don't, if they don't get covered up pretty quickly, they're not going to turn into a fossil. So if something's laying and decaying in water and getting all soft and spongy and chewed up, then it's probably not going to have a chance to actually get fossilized. So that can be a case in a wet environment. In a dry environment, it's kind of the opposite. They're just laying out and desiccating and drying out and getting bleached and, and falling apart. So if they don't get buried pretty rapidly as well they're not going to have a chance to turn into a fossil so those are two of the the kind of contributing factors to that it's actually pretty rare to find an animal um at the end of a track sign i mean that would be like the ideal situation that they all just fall at the end of where they're walking that would be great but it never really happens that way there was a track site recently, though, in the Gobi where they did find um, some ornithomimid tracks that had been left behind. And then they actually did find an ornithomimid that they think may have been tied into those same types of tracks. What is a orn An ornithomimid? <laughs> Ornithomimids basically are animals that look like ostriches with long tails and arms that would reach out and grab you and give you a big hug. Um, but long necks. 
heads that probably you know had a beak-like structure some early forms have teeth the later forms don't and yeah basically would have kind of looked like a giant ostrich it's the dinosaurs that are flocking this way in jurassic park when they have to kind of run with them and one gets attacked by the t-rex so how do paleontologists use then the skeletal remains and these tracks to really understand ancient environments sure so at for instance again at the mill canyon track site we have that we know that this is in the cedar mountain formation which is early cretaceous about 112 million years ago so it occurs in a package of rocks we call the ruby ranch member and we don't really get too many bones from that little pocket of time in this particular area of utah but we have really good representation of fossils and bones in the two packages of rock in the cedar mountain formation right below it the yellow cat and the poison strip and then right above it in the must and touch it a little closer to the swell so we're able to look at those fossilized fauna that we have based on on skeletal material that's preserved and then look at the tracks and kind of think okay well are there any other animals that we don't have represented here in tracks that we might think we're going to find if we kept searching and looking in this area or do we think we've found most of the large megafauna that we're expecting to find at this site so it's kind of nice to be able to tie all these really cool animals that we know existed in this area into these track sites even though there's several million years separating them but knowing that they're still living in this area, we're still getting these same kinds of dinosaurs and that we'll see them again in the mustn't touch it member right above that. How can you tell what dinosaurs are what from their tracks? It's really hard. <laughs> so dinosaur tracks, a lot of times you'll you might see have scientific names. And those are actually the scientific names that have been given to the specific track, not based on the animal that made that track. So when scientists are studying tracks, they categorize the tracks themselves and give them special little fancy Latin or Greek names usually. You're not finding bone and track like we talked about at the same time. So if you go to like the Copper Ridge Dinosaur Track site north of Moab, you'll see some really neat sauropod tracks, which are the long neck plant-eating dinosaurs, or you'll see some three-toed tracks that were made by a meat-eater, probably Allosaurus. And you can study those tracks and compare them to the feet of known animals that are living during this time and do a study and try to determine based on the foot size, the way the toes might be splayed out, the way it might be carrying its weight, what kind of animal it was. And so a study was done um, in 2016 or 17 at Copper Ridge where the paleontologist determined that the theropod tracks that were being made there, which we know are limping as well, that's another really neat thing we can tell from those tracks, is that that animal had a limp on one of his feet, and it probably had some sort of damage to its foot that would have happened, because, you know, if you can't just put a Band-Aid on your foot if you're a dinosaur, so you're going to have, like, these yucky festering wounds pretty often. And so we know that there was an animal with a limp there, and they were able to study those tracks and compare those things like the the foot morphology to other known large meat-eating dinosaurs of the time they were able to tell that those tracks were probably made by allosaurus and not another similar kind of dinosaur like ceratosaurus or torvosaurus which are also living at the same time just based on the foot morphology are there tracks around moab that we don't know who made them yes yeah no there's always tracks that we aren't totally sure who made what um we have 
a series of tracks that I like to call the polka dots because we aren't sure what they are. They're um, parallel kind of polka dot dots along um, the surface of this of this track area. And we don't know what made them. They're very close together. They're definitely made by something organic. But we don't know. So there's, you know, we're happy to admit we don't know. We don't always know everything. There have been lots and lots of ideas tossed around. I always like to show them to people on tours and ask them what what do they think made these tracks. And we get all sorts of guesses from everything from centipedes to baby turtles to things like that. Or maybe a crocodile rolling over in the little bumps on their tail leaving the mark behind in the mud so we aren't sure but yes we definitely have tracks in the moab area we can't identify Uh, when you find tracks is it usually from one species or do tracks usually co-occur most of the track sites that we have in the moab area especially the ones that are formed in these sandstone environments um, are usually just one to two different species that are being represented you don't usually find a big multi-taxic or large accumulation of a bunch of different kinds of dinosaurs or other animals. So for the most part, we're mostly seeing one or two different kinds of dinosaurs, which is what makes sites like Mill Canyon so unique in that we have at least six, if not eight different kinds of animals represented at that site, which is very rare. You usually don't get that many different kinds of tracks exposed at one site. Yeah, tell me more about that site. It was discovered only in 2009, is that right? So that site was found in 2009 by a local Moab man driving across um, a Jeep road, looked out his window and saw some tracks exposed in the wash out there and thought they were really cool, which they are. And he did a great thing. He contacted Dr. Martin Lockley in um, the Colorado area on the Front Range. And he had been working on tracks out here since the early 80s. So Dr. Lockley came out and took a look at the tracks and said, yeah, those are pretty awesome tracks and started um, kind of the process of working on those. So in 2013, when I first started working at the Bureau of Land Management, we helped Dr. Lockley secure his excavation permit for this site. And we went in and photo documented everything that was exposed first, went in and took pictures of all the tracks that we knew were there um, before we touched any of them and did what we call photogrammetry, which is repeat photography to document all of the tracks before we disturbed anything. And then we started to clear the area using deck brooms and push brooms and dust pans and and, uh, little whisk brooms all the way down to things like paintbrushes and toothbrushes to clean off the tracks. And sometimes we wouldn't find tracks and sometimes we found a lot of tracks. So it was a very exciting thing to get to work on for a number of years. And we now have over 200 tracks exposed at the site. And all of those tracks have been photo documented. And we actually have a really great 3D model of all the tracks so that if the if any of them were ever damaged, which would be horrible, we would at least have that digital data preserved so that scientists could continue to study these things or we could make replicas for the public to enjoy if we needed to. But it's just a really, really interesting site. We even have a coprolite from that site. A coprolite is fossilized poop. So we have um, what's probably herbivorous dinosaur poop from that site. So that's pretty exciting. Um, We don't really get any bones out in this area. So it's nice to see so many tracks. And it's probably one of the more well-documented track sites in all of North America. Now we've done so much work with it. And we go back out every few years and do more of that 3D digital documentation. 
So it's been a really neat and special site to get to work on. What kind of insights have come out of that site? One of the neat things that we discovered about the Mill King and Dinosaur Track site is that it actually has an algal mat over the whole surface. And so think like cow pond, pond scum, <laughs> you know, the yucky green stuff floating on the water or on top of the mud. If you go out to Ken's Lake right now, you might see some around the muddy area. And those um, algal mats actually help to preserve the tracks. The animals are walking in this stuff. It's on the mud. And when they're stepping into it, the algal mats actually help holding their track together and kind of help binding it together so that when we had probably a minor storm event come through there and fill in all those tracks with a little bit of mud and debris, kind of like modern day debris flows that we have, it actually helped preserve the tracks and kept them from getting all swept up and, and messed up during that event. So that helped to hold those together. So when you're out there, you'll see kind of this little popcorn-y texture on the surface. And that's actually that algal mat, which is one of the largest fossils that we have out there at the site. So that's one of the neat things that is preserved at the site. And there's also those slide marks where we know animals are slipping in the mud. And probably on this algae, it was probably a little sticky and definitely smelly. Um, so those are some of the neat things that we've been able to determine. We've had folks from all over the world come study the site from... Portugal and Wales and Spain and Korea and China, just amazing scientists from all over the world who have come here to study things. Poland, it's been it's been really wonderful to have this site open for all this international scientific collaboration that's taken place out there, but also to build the trail and allow um, the public to come out and visit the site and for them to be educated about it and learn about all the cool things that you can see there. Are there any hypotheses as to why so many dinosaurs were found at this one site? Yeah, so we think that there are so many tracks at the site, probably because there's a large amount of water there. So it's not deep, but there's enough water that there would have been vegetation nearby, most likely. These animals were coming here to get water to drink, probably coming down there to eat. And like a lot of modern day watering holes, like you see in Africa, these animals are probably coming in and going out and coming in and going out. And as they're doing their normal comings and goings, leaving a lot of their prints behind. And it just happened to be the right kind of environment with the right timing with this event that covers up the tracks. And we know that we have multiple little track layers through there where they're even walking through after the storm event and leaving their traces. So we know that they're continuing to come to this area and they were probably there long before their tracks were even preserved. But that's some of the neat things that we've been able to learn about the site and about why they were probably coming there. One of the things we've been able to study, and we've both done this with professional scientists, but also with youth, we take kids out there and allow them to come with a paleontologist to the site and go down onto the actual track site with a paleontologist and measure the tracks. And when they're measuring these tracks, they can figure out how quickly the animals were moving. And one of the things we've determined at the site is that most of the animals at the site are all walking. They're not running, they're not moving fast, they're not in a big hurry, they're just kind of slowly plodding along. So they're probably just coming down and enjoying their day. And like a lot of modern day watering holes you see, you'll see crocodiles while wildebeest are drinking or elephants at a site where there are also lions um, visiting. And just because you have predator and prey in the same area doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be all these amazing epic battles taking place at the same time. These animals are used to coexisting within the environment without necessarily needing to interact in a 
predator-prey type relationship. So it is kind of cool to, to be able to see that and know that they, they all seem to be in their happy place. At that site in particular, is it known over how long of a period we're looking at these tracks being left behind? Yeah, we're not really sure how long those tracks would have been being made over, but probably was a reasonably short amount of time. A few hours, a few days, probably at most. We know that the surface wasn't drying out. We know it was staying saturated and wet. We don't get mud cracks there that would indicate that anything's being exposed and and going under a drying condition. But it's also not um, being trampled over so much that the tracks are being destroyed from so many animals walking back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, which happens in areas that are exposed for a long amount of time. So it was probably a reasonably short amount of time, a neat little just sliver of time preserved. How is being a paleontologist for the BLM different than being in a research or academic position? Sure. I feel very fortunate and very lucky with my paleontology job at the Bureau of Land Management because I've been able to not only work with researchers who come here from around the world to help them um, either do research that they already knew they wanted to come here and do or to find new sites or help them you know, they come to me, they want to work on a certain kind of animal. I can tell them, oh, we've got these over here that need to be excavated or studied if you're interested in that. So helping with those connections, but also helping with the community and teaching the community about all these really interesting resources that we have here and doing all this education and outreach, visiting the schools and working with um, after school clubs and doing museum story or library story times and things like that and being able to just really interact with the public has been really a wonderful thing that I don't feel like a lot of people always have the opportunity to do. People in museums, paleontologists in museums might have more time for outreach than folks in academia who are more focused on teaching and doing research. So I feel like in the BLM, we have this really wide mission and range to be able to to focus on a variety of things. And I also have really enjoyed getting to work with the other resource specialists in my office to help them with their projects. So if they're going to be building a new mountain bike trail in Moab, I might go out with a group like Trail Mix and hike that trail ahead of time before they build it and look for paleo resources, look for fossils or tracks and help um, keep those protected so that if there's going to be a bike trail going across that and I don't think that that's the best place for those bikes to be riding, I can right there then and there with the folks from Trail Mix bump the site over. A few feet or however far we need to move it so that we're protecting the site so that we're not damaging fossils that are in the ground or tracks or something that could be very sensitive and usually working with other folks like our wildlife biologists or our archaeologists so that we can protect all those resources at once and that's been a really fun experience to get to do this interdisciplinary work with with my colleagues at the BLM or when we have range projects going out with them and making sure that the cows are taken care of the way they need to be, but that the cows also aren't going to be damaging some fossils that might be exposed. What got you interested in paleontology? I kind of got interested in paleontology because I really like animals and I love being outside and I love rocks and just kind of the sense of adventure that paleo brings with it. It's neat to kind of try to imagine what these animals would have looked like and how they were interacting with their environment. And it's something that you can't just go to a zoo or go on safari or go hiking in the woods and observe them. You have to kind of figure it all out from these little clues that have been left behind. So it's kind of this ultimate mystery package of just figuring out how it all worked. And sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong and you just keep building on that. 
paleontology's got a great tribe of people that I get to work with. I have the most amazing colleagues around the world and I feel so lucky to get to work with them. And it's just a really fun science. It's a nice combination of biology and geology. And it's just a really, it's a special field. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, you never really think that you're going to, you might want to be a paleontologist when you're a kid, but you're like, well, I don't know if it's a real thing. Do people really do that? People really do do it. And it's a lot of fun. And um, I, yeah, I encourage you to look into it if you think you're interested in it. And what do you enjoy about being a scientist? I like that sense of discovery. It's always special when you're the first person to look at a dinosaur bone that no one has ever seen before. Like no human has ever seen this bone and you're uncovering it and trying to figure out which way it's going to go next and what might be next to it. And that sense of discovery is really amazing. So I think that that is a lot of fun, whether you're in the field or in the lab cleaning a specimen or looking at something that a member of the public has brought into. I think that that's just that sense of discovery is always really special. So I love that part of about being a scientist. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for this interview. It's been so cool to hear about our amazing treasures around Moab. No, thank you for having me. And it's it's an amazing place. And we appreciate everyone out there protecting these treasures and enjoying them. And please continue working with the scientists in the area to to let us know when you find very cool things because we want to know. It's very exciting. To hear this interview with Rebecca Hunt Foster again or any other past show, you can visit kzmu.org or download them on iTunes or Stitcher. The music for our show is by Jeremy Spalding. Support comes from BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.